This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. my Halloween related story. I don't I think you read about this, but I'm not 100% sure. And I did go and find what I was missing. So this guy who is I think he's out in Oregon now. He just calls up the police and says he wants to confess to a murder that happened a long time ago. Did you hear about this? I did. The Daily Mail has it, Long Crime has it, and it actually hit a bunch of places kind of all at one time. And if you go back and read in early September, a guy named John Michael Ermer, who was 25 years old when he committed the crimes, who's now 68 years old, he confessed to a 1979 cold case murder that happened on October 30th. So it's right before Halloween. The stories that are being told is that he walked into an FBI office in Portland and he told the agents that he wanted to confess to several murders. And he started with this one. I guess this is what they've confirmed so so far. There are multiple stories about this. And depending on which source you use, you'll hear a slightly different story. And what I wanted to point out with him is this. So he did not remember her name. He just remembered a redheaded girl that he said he met at an ice rink and that they went into an abandoned building in an area known as Back Bay, which is in Boston. Once they were inside, he raped her and then he struck her with a hammer, he said, killing her instantly. Now, he told a different version of the story, too, but DNA evidence has corroborated his confession. So in early September, he ends up being arraigned in Boston and held without bail. So investigators are continuing to probe a claim that Rose was not his only victim. But I'll go ahead and say that according to the records I was able to pull, he previously served 30 years in prison for another murder in California. So I don't know how much time he had to commit all these murders. This one is important. So the woman, Susan Rose is her name. I think it's Susan Marsha Rose. She was 24 years old when John Michael Ermer bludgeoned her to death. Ermer has a criminal record. He was convicted in 1983 of an armed robbery and murder of a drug dealer. And that was also a situation where he killed that person with a hammer. They didn't die. He ended up shooting them to kill them. So he had been out and free for 10 years when he walked into the FBI field office in Portland, or uh, it says it's, it says an FBI office in Portland. I assumed a field office, but I might be wrong. In August of 2023, his attorney is saying that this should be taken into consideration as to how he is treated in court, uh, that he is coming and trying to come clean. So the case of Susan Rose had been cold for decades But there had been a trial in 1981 where another man had been charged with a murder and he was acquitted. Uh, 
Now, the rundown from the Daily Mail kind of closes out. It says that in 2005, investigators compared DNA samples found at the scene to those of several persons of interest. But John Ermer was not one of them. And so they say that he traveled to the West Coast shortly after the crime. I found evidence that he had lived in New York City. But the bottom line is he is now going to be tried for Susan Rose's murder. You know, we talk about these cases all the time. And you and I kind of talked about this one briefly before. And I had wanted to know, like, what were the weird details? Law and Crime had a pretty good article on this from early September as well. Brandy Buckman put it up there on September the 11th and I missed it initially, but it got an update on September the 12th and I went back and I read it. She pointed out that this guy had details that no one else would have known. And and the DNA has been locked down at this point, but she also pointed out that his story changed. So in his initial interview and confession, Ermer said that he couldn't recall a lot of details about Susan Rose other than the fact that she was white and she had red hair. Her name or her age didn't stand out. He told police during that first interview that when he met Rose, she had been arguing or quarreling with her boyfriend. Ermer said the boyfriend wanted to explore an empty building with them on Beacon Street that was under renovation at the time. And a police record notes that Ermer claimed it was once inside the building with a boyfriend that he found a hammer and struck Rose with it. He killed her instantly, and then he raped and sodomized her. During the second interview with the FBI, the story changes. And this time, he says that he met Rose at an ice skating rink. They both go back to his apartment. They used the bathroom there, and then they went for a walk. And they stopped at a demolition house and went inside. And at that point, Irma struck Rose one time with a hammer, then put the hammer inside of her body. He took her wallet and he threw the wallet into the Charles River. Uh, Irma made a comment that he believed that she had an IUD because he felt something inside of her during the attack. That was the detail that I think people left out that I was uh, sort of asking you about. This is a disturbing story, but this guy just like walks in and, and, and talks about this cold-blooded rape murder. That's terrible. What did you think of it? So the detail you said you'd asked me about the extra stuff uh, that they were talking about, um, that was actually with a different case, Stephen Smith. Oh. Well, that's a oh. – So <laughs> that's why I was like, I think I'm confusing two things. I definitely uh, screwed that up. Okay, so let's talk about him for a second, too. There's, so we have another confession, right? Yeah, he confessed. And, well, that's what was so weird about that whole thing that just happened, because I was familiar with um, Stephen Smirk, which, but then when I pulled up Susan Rose, I recognized her picture, so I know I've looked at that case, but they're very similar as far as, like, suddenly there's this confession, right? Yeah. But uh, Smirk's case that he confesses to, if I remember correctly, he is 1994. Yes. And her name was Robin. Robin. Mm-hmm. I was just re- confused for a second is all. We have another one we'll throw in here. I had an interest in her case when it was a cold case. You can find several different online sources for this. Uh, Washington Post had it and a couple of the local news sources. So 29 years after someone killed, Ollie Lawrence Jr.'s wife, 
he received a startling email Friday at his home in southern France. The message said to call a detective in Fairfax County, where Robin Lawrence was slashed to death in their home in 1994. So Ollie picks up the phone and he calls the detective, and the police tell him they have a suspect in custody. This development came after decades in which police were stumped by a stabbing and slashing death, which had left the couple's two-year-old wandering around alone in their house in West Springfield, Virginia, for days, the weekend before Thanksgiving in 1994. At a news conference on Monday, police identified the suspect as a 51-year-old man named Stephen Smirk. If you go to look him up, he's got a weird spelling for his name, um, and I might be saying it wrong. It might be Stefan. It's S-T-E-P-H-A-N. Oh, yeah, I guess that's possible. But his last name's definitely Smirk. Yeah, it's the first name that was spelled. And it was here. like they looked at him when he was born. Yeah, yeah. They were like, your sm- name's Smirk. Yeah, he is smirking. In um, every single picture they have of him. Yep. Uh, because they did a Parabond um, identification. I believe it was a Parabond where they do the composite from the DNA. Yep, even the Parabond is smirking. And so they put, you know comparison pictures just I, I guess they're just seeing I mean they don't really draw a conclusion but you can say yes it looks like him or no it doesn't right and so there's several pictures and he's smirking in all of them they they hold this press conference and they did point out that there was a break in the case from Parabon Nanolabs which for those of you who don't know we talk about them but Nanolabs like this part is in Northern Virginia. It's actually one of the places that like when Meg and I first started looking at matches, there's an area there. And I don't know that it's related to this specifically, but you would always see people trying to make comparisons that didn't make any sense, but you could see that there would be rule outs on certain cases from this area of Virginia. But in this case, Uh, They were able to link a DNA profile found at the scene to a family tree, and they they created an image of a possible suspect, and it looks like the suspect. That helped detectives zero in on Smirk, and Smirk was a man who police said was living with his wife and his two high school aged children in New York. It had a long name for the city. I didn't catch it, but I assume it's upstate New York when when the police caught up with them. Fairfax County Police Chief Kevin Davis... He said that he didn't know about any other prior criminal history, but that investigators approached Smirk and he confessed. He was charged with secondary murder, and he is awaiting, in early September, he was waiting extradition from New York to Virginia. The chief said that investigators were still looking for some kind of motive, but they were also uh, doing their due diligence on the case, and they were getting DNA testing from the scene to make sure that it matched a sample taken from Smirk after he confessed. Right. And so that name was uh, Niskayona. Is, is that what it is? I, something, I mean, I don't know that I'm saying it correctly, but the Niskayona police. And so if he confessed, why are they still looking for a motive? I'm curious why that, doesn't that come up in a confession? It can, but I, I think it might be one of those situations where he's just saying that he did it. And he's not really explaining himself. Right. Um, It was just interesting because so he gave a consensual DNA sample once all the like work had been done that led them to know the DNA belonged to him. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, But when they approached him, he gave a consensual DNA sample, which I wish I had that moment on tape or on recording. Yeah. Um, No kidding. 
because, well, 1994, I mean, we're going, that would be 30 years next year, right? Yeah. And so no idea he had left anything behind uh, from what, beyond them saying that uh, they're looking for a motive and for more information and all the verification they're going to do, you know, post identifying the DNA match, it seems to me that they have basically said that like this, she could have been a random victim and it could be like, and well, she could be a random victim and that the crime itself was a very, very heinous crime. I know sometimes that gets overused a little bit, but there were a lot of wounds to Robin Lawrence. Well, and so that brings up a lot of stuff for me because I'm like, well, okay. I do think it's possible somebody could kill somebody like in a one-off situation and it be really, really heinous. Okay. But then again, I also don't really believe that because there's something behind that, that it seems like, uh, would be really hard to put back in the bottle. Yeah. So are you saying like, you're wondering like, what else has this guy maybe done? Or like, was there some specific thing we're going to find out why he did this? Okay. So this crime happens in 94. They get DNA at the time, you know, 30 years later. I don't actually know when they, I don't know when uh, Parabon Nano Labs did their composite, but it was before, like, I, it, I assume it was before forensic genealogy led them to the family tree that led them to uh, Stephen Smirk or Stefan Smirk. I, I saw dates on this that sort of, it looked like this case had some cold case work done in 2005 that leads to those composites. All right. But I, that makes sense? Well, right. Well, 2005 would have been a, like, it makes sense that there would be a composite as opposed to an identification done because before they could do the forensic genetic genealogy, they were already doing the composite pictures because they identified uh, DNA sequences, right? Yeah. That they associated with characteristics Gotcha. And, and they, you know, somebody wrote an algorithm. And so based on like certain DNA says this dude had this color eyes and certain DNA says this about him, And, you know, so they were able to correlate those. Right. And that's and so that happened before. Well, at least before it was known that law enforcement was using the forensic genetic genealogy to yeah. me, um, the. DNA composites are interesting, and I and I was fascinated when it became sort of a thing. You know, it took a really long time, and it's still a very vague sort of identification, right? In some um, ways, yeah. Okay, especially when you compare it to, like, you know, actually, com- you know, finding the actual person, right? Yeah. Um, so it kind of fell by the wayside a little bit. That's why I was wondering, like, I know that they didn't, go that way like recently because you don't really see that that much anymore right unless there's just not a hit at all genetically um, which again doesn't happen very much anymore but 2005 to like 2015 there were a lot of those composite dna they weren't always suspects they did it for Persons lots of, of interest or uh... they they would take the you know Situations where Parabon was taking DNA and making a profile, not only like 
this is the DNA, but this is what the DNA could possibly look like. Right. And so because we're like, you know, we're going to recognize what somebody looks like long before we would ever recognize a, a sheet of paper with a DNA sequence on it. Right. Correct. And that's, they were trying to make it more usable, but like I said, it fell by the wayside because, you know, the forensic genetic genealogy is much more efficient. Okay. So this guy, it made me, I don't know, my spidey sense or whatever. I go, wait a minute. So he did this one crime, very, very heinous. He, but then he's approached, he's immediately caught and he confesses. Now, what do you think is more likely based on your experience researching, like all the different things you've researched having to do with murderers, essentially, do you find it more likely that like a multiple or serial killer is somebody that confesses after being approached or like a one-off is more likely to confess after being approached? I think it depends on the person. I mean, I can see it going either way. Serial killers tend to play with information. That's it true. A, it has the same power trip attached to it that some of the other things they do, maybe not the murders themselves, but like the way that they, the way that their lives go a lot of times uh, when you get caught in that kind of, I'm going to say narcissism. I know that's sort of a pop catchphrase nowadays, but when you get caught in that level of self-absorption, some of the things that you do are for your own jollies. And that could include confessing or holding back information. So it could go either way for me. Okay. Um, And me too. Um, For the most part, like without thinking about it a whole lot, I tend to think one-offs are more likely to confess. Um, I think think that's probably accurate. Like in the grand statistics of it, I think that would be the case. I just, I don't have anything to back it up. It's just my sort of hunch when I think about it. And so, because confessions, especially like non-coerced, like I don't think he would have gotten away with this if he hadn't have confessed because like, a, you know, we've talked about extensively DNA gives you away every time. Right. Yeah. But he, for the most part has gotten away with this. And he was one of those guys that has probably been waiting for that knock on his door. Right. Yeah. That's my guess. So a little bit about him at the time that this happened, he would have been stationed at what was then known as Fort Myers. It's now known as Joint Base Meyer-Henderson Hall in Arlington, Virginia. So he was an active duty army guy when he committed this murder. Right. Mm-hmm. So and- I think in my head, if I only had the one, even if I had multiples, but if I was a military person who knew that DNA was going to be available to them because in the 90s, they started collecting DNA from different military personnel and creating different ways to identify you if something were to happen. I think he might be scared that somewhere along the line, his DNA was going to be coming up anyways. Well, um, so in order for that to happen, you know, I don't know. I, I assume I'm i saying why he responded that way. You see what I mean? With the confession? Yeah. Like he was thinking to himself, like, well, it's, like you said, it's that day. They're here now. Well, right. And um, so I, I'm not really sure. I may have to like readjust my gauge on that as far as like when there's DNA evidence, because if you're approached and they want a DNA sample and then, I mean, if you've done something and you know it, like, you know, 
I assume even a serial killer would go through that same sort of like fight or flight or freeze type situation, right? Where, you know, the jig is up. I would be interested to know more about exactly what happened, but what we do know is uh, the, the evidence was there. They were able to connect it and they'll also, um, so it will go into CODIS if it isn't already in CODIS because they didn't use CODIS to find this man. No, this comes from, uh, there's a, they build a family tree off a DNA probable probability table. C- correct. And that was based on the um, profile that was obtained in the evidence from the crime scene. And so, you know, at that point, uh, I'm sh- actually, they probably, I think that going into CODIS before doing forensic genealogy would be uh, relevant to the process, it seems like it would be more efficient to put it into CODIS first because CODIS, it's a, they're running a search and with forensic genealogy, it's like substantially more hands-on work, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, So it seems like that would be the more efficient way to do it. Of course, we have no idea. It could have matched other crime scenes just because he wasn't in CODIS doesn't mean there's, you know, no more information there. However, for all intents and purposes, from what we can see with the information we have, there's no reason to think this guy was in CODIS initially. No, I don't. I I don't think there, that any of that came about because they did have to go and get him, and they were actually from one of the reports I read, it was something to the effect of they like watched him walk down his driveway and put trash in the trash can, and they said, "Hey." Can we get a cheek swab from you for DNA from this crime that we're investigating? Otherwise, we're going to take your trash. (laughs) Pretty much. I mean, that might have been part of it. I mean, they said it was consensual, so it wasn't a. What do they call that? They call it something when police um, pick up voluntary. Oh, uh, (laughs) when they were going to grab like the 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 public space DNA. Is that what you mean? Yeah, but they called it something, and I thought it was funny because um, basically this is you know, really well established, uh, as far as in like, uh, court in, in the terms of legality, like once you put your, uh, garbage to be picked up by the garbage trucks, um, if they take your garbage and, uh, use it for DNA purposes, like it's not a fourth amendment violation. Right. But I, right. I've heard cops say something that seemed funny of how they describe it, but I can't remember what it was now. But to me, uh, this said it was consensual. So that wouldn't be like a pickup of trash, right? No, no, they didn't pick it. It was not an abandoned DNA sample. They actually were getting a sample from the source. Right. And he, he allowed it, which is, is interesting. I thought about whether if I, I was approached by police and, and they said, you know, we need a DNA sample. Um, I haven't, you know, done anything. And I wondered like, would I give it to him? Right? Yeah. And I don't know if I would or not. And the reason is, well, I'd like to see how it played out for one thing. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm, and the reason I'm saying this is because like, I'm sure that, you know, he was weighing his options, right? Yeah. Um, if I don't give it to him, they can take my trash. Of course, at that point, if he was walking down the driveway with it, he hasn't necessarily discarded it yet, but you know, like, what do you want to do? And so for me, 
I don't know what I would do, but you know, as soon as you say, like, even if I just wanted to say no, cause I just didn't want somebody to have my DNA, right? You immediately look guilty. Yeah. Even if you wanted to just talk to a lawyer to find out what your options were, you look guilty. Like just saying it, you look guilty. Right. And so, so, and the reason I'm saying all this, and I'm sure it sounds kind of double-sided. However, if there's probable cause in a um, case, especially a murder or in a heinous murder at that uh, from 30 years ago, if there's probable cause, police can get a warrant for your DNA. Yeah. And yeah. so all they have to do is present it. And so that would be sort of my inclination. I would say, well, you know, I'm sort of inclined to give you my DNA sample. But at the same time, why don't you go see if a judge will give you a warrant? I don't think I would do anything like that. I don't I don't know what I would do. Dude, but. you have no I would totally do. I, I feel like. But OK, all that being said, now I do have I already have my DNA profile. Right. Yeah. But like knowing I haven't committed a crime and then handing over my DNA and then it matching something I know I didn't do, like scares the hell out of me. I'm not going down that path. Today. <laughs> Sorry. I'm not, you can't steer the boat that direction today. I apologize. I know you no, want to go okay, there. Okay, but, but what I mean is like that, that would be my major holdback, you know? Yeah. But I'm well, not saying that would happen. It's I, just something that happens in my head. It's, it's crazy how this works out, but I brought up the first case because it's Halloween based. And then you bringing up my error, it gives us a Thanksgiving base. Well, I feel like I was going to say something about the other case and I got so confused. But anyway, go ahead. Well, that's okay. Did you have something to say about I, either one of these? I Well, I mean, I think I've talked enough about Mr. Smirk. I do hope that that all gets resolved um, and that her, you know, she can finally rest in peace and her family uh, gets that resolution because 30 years is a long time to wait for that. Um, I was going to switch over because it's Halloween. I wanted to talk about uh, one of the things I had was like masquerading for this. And we've recorded different episodes to use for Halloween. So I don't know like what I was going to make the sort of the cut. But one of the things I wanted to talk about were these two sort of back-to-back crazy stories that aren't really murder-based. Although one gets kind of into uh, organized crime to some degree. Uh, There were cases where I've been following them, reading about them, whatever, and they're, they're kind of headed towards resolutions now. And I think I'm going to start with the lottery guy. So have you heard about this lawyer who was like literally – putting himself out there as like a lawyer to help you after you won the lottery. To be fair, I didn't hear about him like when he was advertising that service. Right. But But yes, I've heard about how that turned out. Yes. Okay. So to kick this off, most of this comes from the DOJ. It's from the Department of Justice. They've had various press releases about this guy. You can find a lot of sources by looking up his name. Um, he goes by Jay Curland, K-U-R-L-A-N-D. And as of this summer, he was a 49-year-old lawyer who lived in Long Island, New York. He got kind of overshadowed by some of the other things that were going on on Long Island. Uh, and it happened in federal court, which means there weren't as many cameras and sound bites to have. Uh, his full name is Jason. And if you pull the DOJ.gov site's 
press release. And then I think Daily Mail had an interesting little write-up on him. It's all from the DOJ, but it, it had some more flowery writing, so I was going to use some of that uh, because they do talk about one thing I was curious about. But this guy is alleged to have stolen $107 million from lottery winners. And here's how the article kind of goes. A Long Island man dubbed the lottery lawyer who conned winners out of $107 million to fund his lavish lifestyle of yachts, vacations, and sports cars has been jailed for 13 years. Uh, So he was convicted in July of 2022 of wire fraud, honest services wire fraud, and money laundering. Prosecutors said that Jake Curlin used his position as an attorney, to steer his clients to invest millions of dollars in companies that he secretly owned. And then he took illegal kickbacks based on those investments. Among the shady deals that Jay Curlin is alleged to have entered into was an investment vehicle that turned out to be a Ponzi scheme masterminded by a Genovese crime family soldier named Christopher Trucio. And I just have to say, if you can work the mob into something, you pretty much have an automatic bestseller about your story. So this guy only being in prison for 13 years, I don't think he's going to get less rich in there. And that disturbs me. <coughs> the married father of three, who was a former partner at the law firm Rivkin Radler, appeared in federal court in Brooklyn, where he was handed down a sentence by U.S. District Judge Nicholas Garofas. And this is going to be on Thursday, around June 16th of 2023. Whatever that Thursday is, is when he's uh, sentenced. Now, his, the other guy, who's allegedly a Genovese crime family uh, soldier of some level, he gets sentenced the day before with five years in prison. They both end up getting three years of supervised release after they finally get out. Now, Curlin's lawyer, he tells the Daily Mail and ABC News that they disagree with the outcome and that they look forward to bringing the matter before the Second Circuit Court. So he's just indicating like he thinks this will work itself out on appeal. Before the sentencing, Jay Curlin could be seen sobbing while reading a statement to the judge saying he was ashamed. He admitted that he did stupid and misguided things. At least that's what the New York Post quotes him for. And they run with this statement. I failed so many, Your Honor. My clients, my family, Curlin said before he asked the judge for leniency. As a partner at the Long Island law firm, Curlin's specialty included representing lottery winners. His clients had won an estimated $3 billion combined. Uh, The lottery victims included a $1.5 billion Mega Millions winner, a $245 million Powerball winner, and a $150 million Jackpot winner. After Curlin gained his clients' trust, he would scam them by having them invest in deals and entities that were controlled by Christopher Truccio and two other co-defendants. They named Francesco Russo and Francis Smookler. Um, he, where he goes wrong is he doesn't disclose his relationship with these gentlemen. Now, just before a trial, Christopher Chuchillo, he pleads guilty to assisting Jake Curlin in the fraud. And he says that he personally pocketed around $25 million 
of the lottery winner's money. The judge, uh, his opinion was that Curlin's goal was to cash in on the success of these clients. And I'm just going to say the luck of his clients. There was not, there's not success related to lottery wins. You just got lucky. But he said, Mr. Curlin had direct access to the money. And like a burglar, he used the access he had to pocket the money for himself and these business partners. He said he considered it unfathomable in any profession, but he called Curlin's actions particularly grotesque and unfathomable for a lawyer. Particularly, particularly grotesque and unfathomable for a lawyer. Uh, these were lucky winners, but when they met Mr. Curlin, they ended up to be losers. After the sentencing was handed down, Curlin's family, who was in the courtroom, wailed in despair, mainly his wife. Damian Williams, the U.S. attorney for Manhattan, said that these defendants who made the lottery winners their victims, their luck had finally run out. Now, Churchillo, he pleads guilty to a conspiracy to commit wire fraud and money laundering. He gets ordered to forfeit $26.5 billion in assets, and he gets ordered to pay $30.5 million in restitution. Was that first number billion or million? Billion, million with an M. Okay. But honestly, the way this order is written up, I think that one of the things that'll come up is that they will try and say that these are the same thing. It's written a little strange in the order. It's like he's supposed to forfeit the $26.5 million against the $30.5 million in restitution. I'm not sure that's what the judge meant, but I think yeah, I don't it. think so, because why would they even say it? Uh, they I, would just I, say the difference, right? It, yeah, that's what I was thinking, was they would say that, that he's ordered to forfeit twenty six point five, and then another uh, $4 million in restitution. And what was he sentenced to? Okay, so Churchill gets five years, but he, he gets he five pled. years plus three years supervised. Yeah, he, he pled out. Now, Curlin's forfeiture and restitution amounts probably by Halloween has still not been determined because they were doing an asset accounting that it looks like there's over $200 million worth of assets and financial transactions to go through. So there's a lot to go through there. And it looks like the bulk of that money came from the one big winner that had over $1.5 billion win. Right. Mm -hmm. So he argued at trial that the other defendants deceived them. Like, see, he basically said that the mob guys took advantage of them. Curlin, Smookler, and Russo had lost $40 million in a year's time after the trio invested the lottery victims' money in investment deals that turned out to be a Ponzi scheme. That's with Churchio. So Carlin, Smuckler, and Russo, they end up losing $40 million to Churchio. In April, they turn to Churchio, and he promises he's going to get the money back. But what he tells them is he is running another scam. His new scam is he has invested, this is early pandemic, in personal protective equipment supply shipments. During the pandemic, he has made a deal that fell off a truck worth whatever. So prosecutors argued that hardly any of the funds that they are like supplying him with go towards any PPE deals. And instead, Turchio, Curlin, Smokler, and Russo, they seem to have pocketed it all. 
It was also revealed that Curlin stole $19.5 million from another client's account to fund this PPE deal. Overall, the prosecutors found that the defendant seemed to be using the money on a Porsche, uh, trips on private jets, over-the-top lavish vacations, and two yachts. One of the lottery winners had invested $5 million of their winnings into a business, unaware that Curlin was not only his representative, but a co-owner of the business. And Curlin had convinced another client to purchase a business for $2 million, but it was owned by a shell corporation that he controlled. The total amount that's agreed on by the prosecutors is they believe $107 million was stolen. Now, Russo and Smuggler, they had already taken guilty pleas, and they're going to be sentenced sometime next year. Curlin is due to uh, – he was due to surrender on October the 18th, so he had this much time to get his affairs in order and to basically assist with the recovery here. And pursuant to a – court order granted at the prosecution's request. This is my favorite part here. The victims' names aren't released. And the victims are allowed to come in and testify against Jason Curlin and the co-conspirators under pseudonyms in order to protect their anonymity. In support of that order, the chief public affairs officer for the United States Attorney's Office in the Southern District of New York said they couldn't like let any of the names out to the media. He's saying that we request that news organizations follow that guidance in any reporting about the identities of the victims that they might've been given to like, let them remain anonymous. Because like, you know, there's so many people that win billion dollar lotteries. Well, I think it had to do with the local rules. I think some of them, it's not known that they won the lottery. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, I guess, but like for the most part, it's unless they, unless they had already hired uh, Curlin to like collect it, it's going to be somewhere, right? Yeah. If you hunt, you can find pretty, even in states where it's a fully anonymous thing. Yes. You can find the vast majority of jackpot winners. Right. Because most of the time. Actually, I don't know how it works in all the states, but, you know, the, it's like public record. The, but the lottery money, essentially, it's being shuffled around to some degree by the state. Correct. That is correct. But and, in like 10 or 12 states, it, you can be completely anonymous. Okay. Well, I'm just saying that I feel like that is a weird stipulation. I have no problem with the victims of this remaining anonymous. I just, I feel like it's kind of weird that they, uh, that the judges like don't tell anybody because, and you know, maybe he doesn't want them to be targeted by scams. And honestly, if it's really Genovese crime family members, he doesn't want them to die. I'm not saying that I'm like, what would they have done to be killed for? Well, they literally handed over you, all their winnings. I don't think they handed over all their winnings. I think they would get shook down for the rest of it, though. I think that's what the judge is worried about. But either way, I thought this was an interesting case. What did you think of this guy? So it's interesting because this guy, uh, so his name is Jay, Jason yeah. Curlin. Yeah. Okay. But all I can think about, like, when I look at him, so this is a financial crime, but there are, like, actual victims attached to it. Um, Definitely, yes. And so I still, 
I sort of maintain like my position on like, uh, except there's so much money attached and it's like, it's not a corporation. It's not, um, you know, somebody that's going to write it off. It's like people that actually lost money that they had won from the lottery. Okay. Yes. All right. So, um, but when I look at him, so his name is uh, Jason Curlin, and all I can think when I look at him is even Steven, and here's why. Because this dude had enough wherewithal about him to, like, be the lotto lawyer or whatever he called himself. Yes. And so that could be a very lucrative position doing everything legally, okay? Yep. All right. However, he so he he has the chutzpah to get up and, you know, be the lotto lawyer and he lands a billion dollar client. Right. Yep. Okay, so he set himself up, except he also is dumb enough to, you know, use the position that he's created for himself to essentially, you know, waste where he's gotten himself because, you know, he took the money, he misappropriated it. He was doing stuff that like, I can only imagine, like, what do you think he told himself was going to happen? I have no idea. Like, that- there's going to be a magic wand that appears that he can like make the money reappear. You know, if it, so he's a lawyer. He, we've seen this recently in a couple of high profile cases involving lawyers where they are in these positions of like having access to huge amounts of money. And honestly, they're, they're abusing trust. Well, one of the problems with this case is that I think he went, looked at it and went, I'm going to pay this money back with these investments that I'm making. And I'm also going to make my own money. I think he's that kind of dumb. Okay, and I get that, and that actually would be the logical way to look at that, except to me when I was, I can't remember if I read the actual, was there, there was maybe some court paperwork, but I guess it wouldn't have been the final, because they haven't even decided his restitution, so nothing would be filed yet. But anyway, I, I read something, it may have just been an article, but my understanding was like, there weren't any investments. They were just telling the people that they were investing their money for them, but they were spending it. Oh, you think it was all a scam? Well, and well, that's what led me to be like, well, that was really dumb. And that when I look at the guy, I'm like, well, even Steven, buddy, like, because he just he got himself ahead just to knock himself back down. Right. Which is kind of how life works. You know, it always I mean, this is a little extreme, but it's still like a really good example. in in my opinion, because he did he had he would have been so incredibly successful if he had just done things the right way, as far as being in a better financial position, which I assume that's why you would be the lotto lawyer, right? Yeah, that's the whole Um, point. Now, the other thing about that is there is a situation where you are honest with your clients, where you can make them money and make yourself money. And so, again, when I was sort of hearing all of this stuff that was happening, I was going, well, wait a second, because it's almost like they just got their hand in the cookie jar and they ate the whole thing, right? Because because they didn't use it 
for investments that were going to return money, right? right? Cause right. that's the other part of it. Like if you just invest in your portion, your mansion, like, I don't know that you're going to get the returns you're expecting. Yeah. I'm, so I'm getting the overall impression as I read and kind of dig through the court stuff here, that these are not the smartest guys on their teams. Right. But that, so he, but he, he had something that allowed him to be in this position because it takes something to convince someone. I'm the lottery lawyer. Of course, now there will never be another lottery lawyer because this guy has. No, there's. Trust. This is, but this is like the Better Call Saul version of the lottery lawyer. That like there are law, there are law firms that specialize in things like this. That partner with financial firms that specialize with things like this. And the way a guy like this gets in this position is because some of those bigger firms have a reputation for being, you know, a little brusque, expensive, like sort of taking advantage of their clients, et cetera. So this guy is able to step in and be like, we don't do that at my little homegrown law firm here. And I don't know how big this firm is. I didn't look a lot into that part of it. I was so fascinated with this amount of fraud and this many tentacles based on what you said. It was a brilliant idea. You can't tell exactly what he was doing. But if you go back about... A year and a half. There were a lot of little articles in local papers that were covering this trial. And one of the things that was happening was uh, these people were speaking anonymously to different uh, elements of the press. He is part of a law firm at one point that works on behalf of insurers. And he actually had this really strange thing happen. A U.S. District Court rules in July of 2022 that because of vague policy terms, an insurer, the Fireman's Fund, had to cover the defense costs for Jason Curlin under the professional liability and malpractice policy that he had with them. It's actually a really big deal. So Fireman's Fund Insurance Company, they're a U.S. subsidiary of global insurance firm Alliance. And I like I don't know if 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 you get super into insurance stuff. So Alliance is a California-based insurance company. Now they had denied coverage for this, saying that their professional liability policy did not include criminal cases, and it precluded proceedings seeking injunctive or other non-pecuniary relief. It had also argued that Curlin's criminal conduct for his own benefit disqualified him from coverage under that policy. But at the time, the district court rejected those arguments and they said that the policy was unclear about defining suit, the word suit, S-U-I-T, as only applying to civil cases. So Joan Azrak, who's an Eastern District of New York judge, she said that the Fireman's Fund could have easily limited its policy coverage terms to exclude criminal proceedings, but they failed to include that in the, the language. I thought that was interesting because that means that opens up a big door like down the road. But essentially, that's why his case. Yeah, because they could potentially be held liable for damages. Yeah, yeah. And ultimately, uh, as this plays out, like it, it starts with the four of them, like the four guys here. They're all essentially 
pleading not guilty at the beginning and then slowly but surely they start pleading out and then Curlin's kind of the last man standing in all of this the the last guy pleads guilty like just ahead of and gets sentenced just ahead of Curlin like he like the way that it works out is he pleads guilty and then Curlin ends up being found guilty then that guy gets sentenced on a Wednesday Curling gets sentenced on a Thursday. So he's just like, a, he's the last man standing in all of this. Well, right. But he, um, they had filed for his case to be severed from the others because before the others pled or worked out, you know, negotiated their plea deals, he was basically going to say that he had no idea what was going on. And the judge, like, wouldn't let them sever the trials. They were going to try them all at once. Right. And so by holding out like he did, he could no longer really say that. Right. Because the defendants are, they've taken their pleas, they've done their own thing. And so the case is presented against him without the benefit of any of that. And all of them are probably testifying against him. Yeah. So (laughs) yeah, it, it, it is sort of wild how it all ends up working out. Now, if you go back to 2018, 2019, 2020, uh, Jason Curlin is making appearances with like these people as they're winning. He is going on other podcasts and other morning shows, and he is talking about what to do if you win a big lottery prize. He, in some ways, is sort of a genius in how he's marketing himself along the way, and he ends up biting him. I, I was thinking about this from the perspective of like, no matter what they do to him, I know he's getting 13 years in federal prison. I get that that's terrible. And then he's going to have to do three years of federal parole after that. And that's not going to be fun either, but you can't take back the experiences this guy had. This guy managed to turn all this into these huge, crazy vacations for his family. He did a lot of stuff with his money that like, in terms of experiences, like he was able to live a life that like he could have continued. And I, th- I think you hit the nail on the head. He could have made this his thing legally. Well, right. And like, you know that there's like standard disclosure forms, right? Yes. That he like literally could have had his client sign and he would be off the hook with regard to some of what happened. I, I think I think there's something he's done here that's covered his ass on a lot of that those situations. Well, the fact that so the problem was like he did not disclose that he had an interest and he was well. They say the kickbacks are illegal, so it has to be phrased a different way, right? But if he had disclosed it to his clients, hey, look, you can invest in this business, and by the way, I do get um, whatever, right? Um, as long as you disclose it, it's then up to. Uh, the party making the decision on the advice of the person who has just told you they have an interest in it, right? Yeah, they Um, would have to waive the conflict. And as soon as they waive that conflict under the disclosure, like he would largely be simply taking commissions from both sides. Right. And, you know, I, I, now I, I don't know that I agree that like his experiences were worth the 13 years he's going to spend in federal prison, but I see what you're saying. And I would say that it seems like somebody that's smart enough to put together this whole situation would have their clients sign the disclosure. Um, it seems I, I, so crazy to me that now I noticed on the charges, he starts out uh, and the, the mob member 
isn't charged until later on. Yeah, I think he is actually what undoes. Ultimately, I think he's what what undoes Curlin's chance of getting away with all this. No matter what kind of disclosures you have, if you have all, if you have other parties that are involved in the conspiracy like this or involved in the fraud, I think you get yourself into a position pretty quickly where it doesn't matter like how many pieces of paper you put down. Largely, involving outside and unqualified parties negates some of the disclosures that you're. Uh, putting together that are covering your own ass. They don't cover other people's ass. And that ends up taking you down, particularly when it's someone who already has some level of notoriety as something else. Well, to me, that would be two separate things because just like with any investment, like you can only say so much, right? You can't uh, like objectively say anything about anybody because you don't really know what's going to happen in an investment, right? Now, there could be bad faith, right, where you're bolstering something that you happen to know is not going to happen, right? Right. Um, And so that's one thing. But, like, as far as, like, just strictly investing money, you know, if you feel like this is a good investment and then something falls out on the other side, you know, that's why there's so many disclaimers on investments, right? They're not guaranteed to do anything. So, I, I mean, I don't know. That could have been like a whole different route. I am interested in the insurance situation. Um, I'm also interested in the fact that like they were required to pay for his defense. And it it basically, like you said, boiled down to the fact that uh, they didn't distinguish what a suit is as far as they didn't say we do not cover criminal criminal charges in suits, right? Correct. I don't hear about, ah, that just opens up so much. I'm interested to see if there's a claim brought against them and then like what happens because they did defend him. Right. That like exposes their liability essentially to me. It does, yeah. There's like this, all this like red tape, I'm sure, that will be involved in that situation. And, you know, I I don't really know how that would play out, but because this is a weird situation, right? Where you've got a professional insurance firm having to cover uh, its client in their professional capacity for committing a crime. They're having to cover the, the cost of his defense and clearly having been found guilty, you know, if the court had ruled uh, initially that they had to cover his defense because it was part of the policy, well, shouldn't they cover the damages he caused? And so that should be kind of interesting. It'll probably all be settled and we'll never know anything, but uh, that it, that's, it. you know, the, the ripples reach, don't they? <laughs> yes, they do. I I just, I thought this was an interesting case. We hadn't covered it. I know that it's got some other coverage out there where people can read about it. Uh, it actually popped up in a listicle that uh, I was checking out uh, th- that this guy was going to, you know, be getting significant prison time. And there were other cases on there. And I just thought, you know, we're going to have a little murder at Halloween. Maybe we should cover something that was like less uh, violent and gory. And, I, you know, I like to say that sometimes the American legal system is like one of the scariest things that we can encounter anyway. So that's a great topic for uh, Halloween. I had a, another uh, situation that I wanted to bring up on this episode. Do you have anything else on Jay Curlin right now? Or 
Is that I'm good to move on, yeah. Uh, when I was researching uh, Curlin's case, I noticed that like, there were some unindicted co-conspirators who got immunity, and they're never named. And I looked like kind of all over, and uh, I found them through their lawyers to some degree, but th- I noticed that now the lawyers have changed the websites to say like they secured immunity, like they're bragging about this. Like we secured immunity for someone related to the Jake Curlin case. And I was just like, that's a thing you put on your website today. Well, now it is right because it's getting coverage. It boosts their reputation. This is not something that would have happened. I would say even like five years ago. Right. I totally agree. And it's, it's the whole transition and exposure as far as like, you know, no publicity is bad publicity. Um, yeah. And, you know, as far as that situation goes, we don't really know. I mean, you, I think you know more about it than I do, but that's interesting. Well, I, I was, I was sort of looking at like the ways people get heat and it's just strange to me. There's, there's a couple of lawyers that are on the fringes of this case that are tied to these other big cases right now. And anytime I see them on like so many like large high profile cases, I'm like, how is someone not looking at that and like asking questions about what they're doing? It's not that well, they're doing anything wrong. Sometimes it's just really complicated. And because, you know, once they go down the road with one of them, it's easier to go down the road again because, you know, to come to defend a case or even to prosecute a case like this, um, you know, you've got to like, there's a long winding path, right? And it's not like you're going to go to your, you know, corner law practice and pick somebody up that's going to be able to navigate through this uh, successfully, more than likely. I'm, I'm not trying to put anybody down. But so it is a kind of niche market for these elaborate financial crime situations right now yeah. do you think he should serve jail time prison time curland mm-hmm. um it was a little surprising to me that like out of the group he got the most prison time well he didn't take a plea right i i mean i i think they're you know it's it's interesting how the criminal justice system treats lawyers when lawyers are like they treat them like they should know they, better. Right. Like they, it's like they simultaneously have this reputation where certain people don't like lawyers and think that lawyers are doing bad stuff all the time. Um, so they get that reputation. But the court and the system itself and the members of the system, they consider lawyers to be already have been held to a higher standard. And that's how, you know, admission to the bar happens and and that like they're supposed to be playing in a pool with more ethics and morals than the average person. Well, right, because their background in law gives them the ability sometimes to navigate through the situations that they end up being a criminal for. Right. And so I, I will say this. He definitely should have gotten some prison time. I'm betting that he doesn't do that whole sentence. And I don't know if it'll be a good appellate lawyer or or his cooperation and something else or what, but I'm betting that they'll end up being, I mean, he's not going to be a lawyer again. Yeah. Well, yeah, I don't know. Has he been disbarred? 
I don't think that's even on the menu yet. Um, <laughs> that's I, a good question. I did I did not think to go that route. No, yet. you know what? Um, but that <laughs> yeah, I don't know if he's been disbarred or not. This is one of the first cases where I've said like I don't know if he should have gotten jail time or not. Um, I, I don't disagree with what the court has done. It's more about making these people whole, in well, my I opinion. I was, like, really excited when the insurance thing came up because I'm like, they might get some money back. Um, I think, interestingly enough, I think some of these people will almost be made whole because of the way the money was spent. And also, the other weird thing about these, like, there, there is a portion of this money that's gone. It's, it's now into the ether. Right, yeah, but some of it, I mean, he had quite a bit of assets. Yeah, there was a lot of assets, and that's actually, like, one of the reasons that he's still out, because getting his affairs in order also means getting affairs in order related to these these victims. Is it wrong that I think to myself, if I was the person that sentenced him to 13 years, I certainly wouldn't have given him a month to leave the country? I mean, I I sort of agree with you on that. I think that that I think that's a real possibility that there. Let there me get my that, hundreds of millions of dollars in order in my Swiss offshore bank account while I go somewhere that doesn't extradite. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, there are aspects of there are aspects of this case where everything seems like a risk because of money, and. Even now, I was able to go on today and like look back through the like manage your lottery winning stuff that this guy had done and sort of go, you know, if you're so first of all, if you're that forward thinking, I bet you have a plan. If, if just like what you said. Well, right. So what was it? Like what did he think was gonna happen? I I look, man, so I think it's they they legitimately make some early bad investments and then they just keep kind of going back to the pot and they're like, Oh, this was easy to do. We'll just keep doing that. So you, you and, think that he may not have started like, I'm just going to use the money and you know, no, I don't think, I think honestly, I think if we were to look at this, I think we are only seeing a portion of what he did. And I think what you said applies in terms of like a lot, there's a lot of CYA. I think there's a bigger, thing that went on here that could be described as, you know, fraud, but it was okay to a point because one, you had people with like, like if you win a, and we'll just use one person and I'm not judging that person. I'm just saying you win a billion dollars, no matter what you were before your life changed overnight. So, and, and this sounds terrible, but you're not going to understand if $100 million is gone from a trust. And it doesn't look like he took $100 million from anybody. Well, no, because he is having them invest in things. Right. And so I think to a point, this guy did have a plan and that plan made sense. But when he – look, if you get – It was very tempting. These, I understand. Uh, if you get these other three guys involved, they're your problem. Because they're going to expand on your idea and they know that you're running a scheme. And, you know, one guy saying, look, man, I'm going to go talk to your wallet over here and tell them what you're doing. Right. And, uh, you know, they're the ones that ended up testifying against him. I'm just saying. 
Yeah. So when you're in that situation where other people know you've done something wrong, sometimes it's it's the decisions you make in a hurry that are messy and they're not as thought out as your plan was. And they poke holes in your plan because now when the books get opened up and everything gets looked at, you look like a, a robber baron Ponzi scheme and criminal. Which is what exactly what happened. I mean, that, I have to, I do believe, I can't, I cannot believe that he started like thinking, I'm going to do this for a little bit and then go to jail. Right. But I will say this, this is the type of guy that ends up working for the government. I'm so serious. Like, at no, some, that, yeah, there, there's like, no question. Like, like you could almost like, first of all, his life rights are still up to grab because not, there's no violent crimes in this. It's, you know, federal crimes out of New York. So his story is going to be told. There's going to be a podcast that like he is attached to where he's telling part of the story or a documentary. It may not be right now, maybe five years from now, 10 years from now, whatever. But there is going to be something that comes out of this where people can learn from him. Well, and so I think it would be better if um, the lottery winners uh, had their story told. I would agree with you there. But, like, again, I've and I read some of their stories over the years because, okay, timeline on this. Because I I have another case, but we've got some time here. We didn't go too crazy with this. So I'm going to give you the timeline. This guy starts getting found out in 2020. takes till 2023 for it all to kind of get wrapped up. Does that make sense? Right. And it, but he was doing things in like 18 and 19. Correct. Yeah. So when he starts to get found out, he's had a couple years on this. So I've seen a couple different versions of this guy. I've seen a version of him that's like sitting down for the morning show with his client that's got the billion dollars or whatever they won. Yeah, he really, he looks very professional. Yeah. He like he sounds professional. He's he, exactly what you picture when you think 49-year-old lawyer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like he seems like the kind of guy that for the most part was probably keeping things together. So when I look at him at that time, then there's like the second version of him where he gets a little too arrogant. He's like literally pitching himself. Like it's almost commercial quality pitching. Like, you know, I'm the only one that can do this type attitude. And then there's the sort of hindsight is 2020 looking back on those two guys version that is caught. But says he's innocent. Which I also think was a mistake. Yeah, I think there was a way for him. Like, I'm still not. I I don't think you're totally wrong that, like, there's a risk to him being out of prison for the amount of time he's been out of prison. Because, like, even as you and I are recording this ahead of Halloween, he doesn't have to report till around Halloween. And he's been out of prison this whole time. Right. And, you know, I don't know what's going to happen, but um, we could probably like throw in an update if he does leave the country. But there's no element of this, though, that he says all those guys um, are responsible for all of this. And I legitimately thought I should be making all that money just from what I was legally doing. Yeah, like there 
it, it, there's a point in time where if you – so and there, if people want to read about this, you can go on. It's United States versus Cortland. There are like a lot of the case have been pulled out of Pacer and people have put it online in like the lower free case uh, data mining sites. So you can read it, but I'm going to warn you. There are so many elements to this case. First of all, there's this whole side argument between the defendants. There's this whole thing between a couple of the defendants and different insurance companies. And then there's this tons and tons of motions surrounding like what comes in and what stays out. And if you start reading those, it actually gets confusing because the prosecution was realizing as they're digging through this, some of what he did while questionable was not illegal. Which I mean, I can believe that. And when you have that many things, like, okay, there were things where, they wanted his tax returns. It was clear that the reason they wanted to go through his tax returns was because they were trying to figure out how he lived the life that he was living. And then he gets into these minutia arguments where he's arguing over the words money and laundering. And now, now it's his defense attorneys, but it is it is simultaneously some of the most infuriating piles of motions in the mind as it is brilliant lawyering. I mean, I have never seen the hairs that these people are splitting. And I think part of that is because it's, it's allowed to go on because it's what you were saying. It's a financial crime and the prosecution really wants him in prison and he really doesn't want to go to prison. Right. And, and I don't know that like any naivety on his part would change either position. Yeah. So where they get into really deep crap is, you know how you, okay. Imagine if you will, law lottery winners are told not to really tell anyone they've won the lottery because people come out of the woodwork and want a piece of it. This guy had involved family members invading his... So think of this as... I don't know how to say it. Think Curlin won the lottery with his scheme to represent the lottery people. He was telling people around him he had done it and involving people in his life, like one of the uninvolved co-conspirators, I believe is his brother-in-law. I don't know that for sure based on, like, they might be saying something else there, but there is at least one motion that mentions the brother-in-law. And the government is trying to prove that uh, Curlin has been engaging in what's known as structuring. Right. And he's trying to get out of essentially IRS scrutiny, which is not part of the case it's like they're it's like they're the government is constantly trying to open the door with him and they're like maybe we can get the IRS to get in here maybe we well, can get when you said that they wanted to see what where he's getting the money that he's living this lifestyle from I was like no they're not they're trying to get IRS charges against him <laughs> but I don't know that for sure that's just what went through my head right no I'm saying the family members were trying to see where he's getting the money from and get in on it and then the family members start making bad investments. Mm-hmm. 
And some of them are doing it at the direction of Curlin so that it looks like they were all given the same tip and they all screwed it up. That sounds like a really bad idea. There's a lot of this that like is clearly a lawyer who thinks he's a financial genius. Well, um, he's a, he might be a legal genius, but he's not a financial genius. You know, I would say that when you end up in jail for 13 years, I feel like being a legal genius is a moot point. I would kind of agree with you on that. I mean, we'll see how this all shakes out on appeal because there are weirdly lots of stuff preserved here for him to appeal back out. So, right, but as it stands right now, he should be going to serve his term very shortly. Yeah, he should have been reporting on. Anything else on, on Curlin right now? Because if yeah. he disappears, I'll bring him back up. He'll become a whole thing. No, I don't have anything else. He okay. he, he is fascinating, though. Yeah. So Curland was fascinating to me. And this other guy is even more fascinating. Actually, I'm, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to hold all of this back. Uh, we're going to do a couple of different episodes and then I'll, I'll talk to you about this, but this is going to become a series. Uh, this, the next person is actually going to become a series of episodes that we do. That's a little less murdery after Halloween. So I'm going to hold that for now. Thank you so much for joining us today. We'll see you next time. This is for this week's episode. Uh, we actually recorded most of the episodes that we're doing between now and the end of the year. They're already here. But I wanted to read this to you because uh, while you and I were working on other recordings and things for the show, this popped up in my headlines. So uh, this is uh, just a few minutes ago. This is from Carol Robinson writing for uh, AL.com and Ivana uh, Rinkway also writing for, I can't, I'm maybe saying your last name wrong, H-R-Y-N-K-I-W. In an emotionally charged hearing in Birmingham's federal court this morning, it was revealed that Joran Vandersloot had confessed to killing Mountain Brook teenager Natalie Holloway in Aruba in 2005. The Dutch national from Aruba was long suspected in the disappearance and death and pleaded guilty today to the extortion of Natalie's mother, Beth. He waived his rights to appeal. Vandersloot, 36, receives a 20-year sentence on each of these two convictions. These sentences will be served concurrently with each other and also concurrently with his sentence in Peru. Vandersloot, in a chilling confession, said that he kicked Natalie Holloway in the face and then bludgeoned her with a cinder block when she refused his sexual advances. Uh, There's a transcript in here. Uh, When she needs me in the crotch, uh, I get up on the beach and I kick her extremely hard in the face. A transcript of his confession states, he said, um, yeah, she's laying down unconscious, possibly even dead, but definitely unconscious. Vandersloot said he then smashed her head in with a cinder block he found and he put her body into the ocean. I walk up to about my knees into the ocean and I push her into the, into the sea. Um, and yeah, after that, I, I get out, I walk home. Uh, tearful Beth Holloway said in court, you have finally admitted that in fact you murdered her. 
You terminated her dreams, her potential, her possibilities when you bludgeoned her to death in 2005. Uh, this is Holloway saying this after uh, Yoren pleads guilty. You didn't get what you wanted from Natalie, your sexual satisfaction, so you brutally killed her. You are the one in Aruba no one wants to be. You are the black mark on the island. After the hearing, Beth Holloway told reporters that Vandersloot described when and how he killed her. He said after killing her on the beach in Aruba, he put her into the water, and that was the last that he ever saw of her. She said that after Natalie was killed, Vandersloot said he went home and he watched pornography. Holloway said she feels sorry for his mother and his grandmother. I have no doubt she would have been, she would have made all her dreams come true. She really would have, said Beth Holliday, Holloway of Natalie. Uh, Vandersloot sat with his attorney in an orange jumpsuit drinking water and showed no visible signs of emotion. When U.S. District Court Judge Anna, Anna Manasco Asked if he knew he could be charged with perjury if he lied. Vandersloot said, yes, ma'am. I would like to take this chance to apologize to the Holloway family, to apologize to my own family, to say I hope the statement I provided brings some kind of closure to everyone involved. And Vandersloot then said he is now a Christian. I am no longer the person I was back then. Uh, Manasco said she thought about rejecting the plea agreement so that if he was convicted, she can sentence him to a term consecutive instead of concurrent with the one he's serving in Peru. She chose not to do that to keep from losing his confession. Vandersloot's currently serving a 28-year prison sentence in Peru for the 2010 murder of Lima College student Stephanie Flores. Flores was killed five years to the day that Natalie Holloway disappeared. His Peru sentence expires in 2045. Should Vandersloot be released from the Peruvian prison early for any reason, he would then have to serve the remainder of the 20-year sentence in the U.S. It was stated in court he will be promptly removed from the United States and taken back to Peru. Beth Holloway told him, I paid my daughter's killer money. That's shocking. I don't think anyone can really wrap their mind around what that means. By the way, you look like hell, Joran. I do not see how you're going to make it. You're a killer, and I want you to remember that every time that jail door slams. According to court documents, the judge would consider statements only from the victim of the extortion and wire fraud, Beth Holloway, and members of Natalie's immediate family. Beth was the only family member who spoke in court. Uh, Vandersloot plea states he exploited the fear of Holloway's mother that she would never find her daughter's body or know what happened to her unless she paid him $250,000. As part of this agreement, Vandersloot has agreed to take a polygraph, which prosecutors say he passed. Natalie's parents were allowed to hear his confession for that in real time. The extortion case was prosecuted by Lloyd Peoples, the chief of the U.S. Attorney's Criminal Division, and U.S. Assistant, Assistant U.S. Attorney Catherine Crosby. Vandersloot, Peoples said, picked his victim and in choosing to defraud Beth Holloway, chose his own greed over Beth Holloway's grief. Manasco called Natalie's death a brutal murder and said the only evidence is, is his confession to killing her and the disposal and destruction of her remains. You have brutally murdered two women who refused your sexual advances. You know the information you were selling was an absolute lie, Manasco said of his extortion of Beth Holloway. Manasco said the pain of Natalie's death was compounded by the fact that her family has not found and likely will not find her remains. Asked outside of court if she hoped the Ruba would now charge Vandersloot and Natalie's death, Holloway said, hopefully, maybe they will look into that. I have what I need. Uh, Vandersloot was represented by Alexandria Darby of the Federal Public Defender's Office. He uh, told the judge this morning he was fully satisfied with his attorneys. 
Um, for those of you who don't know this case, I'm not going to recap it right now, but I wanted to point out that that, uh, that statement was just made as we were recording. Right. And so, um, he was sentenced, uh, on an extortion charge, right? Yeah. Uh, um, it's extortion and wire fraud, I believe were the two charges. Right. And so, um, so what do you think about, um, now that he confessed as part of his, uh, as part of his plea agreement, which of course, you know, plea agreements aren't privy to public record, right? Uh, they're not part of public record, just the outcome is. Usually, yeah. Do you think uh, if that was not uh, disposed of, I don't know if that's the right word, if that wasn't, you know, addressed in the plea agreement, do you think they should charge him with her murder? In Aruba? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think they, they should absolutely. charge him anyway. They absolutely should, right? He just confessed I mean, to first-degree murder on your soil. If you want tourists to keep coming, you need to charge this guy and and just provide a place for him somewhere under the jail. I mean, this guy's like a walking turd anyways. He absolutely but, is. And, you know, he, was the, he has been the suspect from, you know, he was the last person seen with her, right? Yeah. Yeah, and, he did it. And there was never any question, and it has been such a big deal for so long. And now they have his confession, right? Yeah. Um, it it will be unbelievable if they do not charge him. Yeah. Um, I hate it that it's going to like continue the um, expense involved with what that entails, right? But I feel like. You know, if you if they don't do that, you can't. I don't know. I, I guess because of where we're at in time and space, you can't have these like huge buildups. Like you know, Natalie Holloway disappeared, right? And everything that goes along with that, and then have the guy confess and like, oh yeah, he's sentenced for twenty years for. Um, extortion and wire fraud in the United States and he'll be brought back here if he were to get out of the Peruvian jail that he's serving time for the other murder he committed. Yeah. I mean that to me that's a very lackluster ending to that saga. Yeah. Yeah, one count of extortion, one count of wire fraud, and that's a that's for what he did against Beth Holloway, Valley Holloway's mom. And I feel like, um, you know, while it is really bad for a murderer to extort the victim's mother, um, it was literally the only thing the United States could get him on. Yeah. It is. And, you know, that case has bothered me for so long. I think about that girl all the time, man. Like, I don't even like I have nothing to do with that case. I know nothing about her. And I I know people get on this whole kick about, like, missing white women syndrome and all that. And they point to her. That's because Beth Holloway was torn apart by that happening. And, like, I will never forget her Natalie Holloway disappearing. Oh, I don't think anybody will. And. Um, I feel like a, like a really long time ago, it made 
the most sense that clearly it was the last person she was seen with. Right. Um, and that's why it's just never been a mystery in my mind. Anyways, that's, uh, that's all. I just want to put that into this week's episode. All right, so I'm going to tell you guys uh, a few things about some of the folks who are helping sponsor our show. Now, Labrati Creations sponsors our show, and you can always use the, the Crime XS code there. Um, you can also just message them uh, at uh, Labrati Creations, and they will generally do something for the people who come from True Crime XS. They were our very first sponsor. They've done a lot for the show. And that code is CRIMEXS at LabratiCreations.com. The first new advertisers that we have, and I've, I've selected all of these guys. I've selected all of these advertisers. So the very first one is Cure. Now, I'm going to tell you guys about this, uh, about Cure as being one of our sponsors. If you're an athlete, you know that proper hydration is key to peak performance, but plain water can be boring and sports drinks can be filled with artificial ingredients and added sugars. That's why we love Cure. It's a clean and effective way to stay hydrated and perform at your best. I use it late in the day when I switch out of caffeine mode, specifically when I hit the pool or I go play tennis with my wife. I use Cure to help me stay hydrated it helps me recover after a long day. Now, you guys may not know this, but I build things. And right now, I've been building several structures on our property out here. Among those is a new podcast studio space for myself. I do a lot of that work at night and into the wee hours. And I always have some cure with me to go into my aluminum water bottle. Hydration is not just about filling up my aluminum bottle with water. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and rehydrate quickly. Whether I'm building things or putting the podcast together or chasing these dogs that you sometimes hear in my studio up and down the trails to get them worn out, Cure Hydration is the way that I choose to go. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution or an ORS that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and to rehydrate quickly. The formula is made with all natural ingredients like coconut water powder and pink Himalayan salt. It's free from artificial flavors, from sweeteners and preservatives. Cure Hydration is vegan, gluten-free and non-GMO, making it a great option for anyone with dietary restrictions or preferences. The packets are convenient and easy to use. You just mix them with your water and you drink. They're perfect for on the go. They're perfect for travel. And anytime you need a quick and effective hydration boost, ready to combat dehydration, then you try Cure today and feel the difference for yourself. You can use code TRUECRIMEXS for 20% off your order. That's T-R-U-E-C-R-I-M-E-X-S. I have a link that I'm putting in the most recent episode show notes, and True Crime Access will get you 20% off. Our second sponsor for the show today is Laird. Now, Laird has a list of things that they want me to tell you about. They have better ingredients with amazing taste and functional benefits. They have a superfood creamer crafted from the highest quality all-natural real food ingredients. 
all Laird products are sustainably sourced and thoroughly tested to ensure that you're incorporating the cleanest, finest fuel into your routine. They have all natural whole food ingredients and they contain naturally occurring MCTs made from coconut oil. There's no artificial flavors, there's no colors or additives, and there's no sugar from highly refined corn syrup. They want me to talk about my love of coffee, but the truth is I don't do much with coffee, but let me tell you someone who does. My wife has to have a cup of coffee every day. Now, I've fallen off recently, but one of the big things that I've done since the beginning of our relationship is she used to go and get a Starbucks every morning. I have substituted that out by always trying to make her coffee. It's not going to be every single day of time from when I met her, but for the most part, almost every day, I make her coffee. I put her creamers together, and I make sure that she has a good way to start her day. So with Laird, he started experimenting with his morning ritual almost two decades ago. He found that when he started adding fats to his morning cup, like coconut oil, he had amazing energy throughout the rest of his day. He gradually perfected this recipe for an epic cup of fuel, and he began sharing it with his friends in the surf community. I'm an ocean guy, so... I saw this item and I was like, okay, we're going to try this one out. Are you ready to feel more energized, more focused, and supported? Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. And you can use our promo code at checkout to save 15% off your purchase today. Our offer code for this for Laird is going to be X. Yes. Pretty much everywhere except for Labrador Creations. If you use True Crime XS, that will get you, uh, at Laird, it'll get you 15% off. At some of the other places, it'll get you 20% off. Uh, I'm going to tell you about two more uh, sponsors today. So the first one is, uh, the third one is Liquid IV. So let's talk about the real reasons that you need to hydrate. Late night TV binging, back-to-back Zoom meetings, going on a walk with your friends. Everyday hydration is not just for high-energy athletic endeavors. Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. It's now available in sugar-free. This is years in the making. But Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free uses a proprietary zero-sugar hydration solution with no artificial sweeteners. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, but it's also got eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness. Liquid IV hydrates two times faster than water alone. Keep your daily routine exciting with three new flavors. They've got white peach, green grape, and lemon lime. I love all of these flavors, but I think that my favorite is probably the green grape. Uh, White peach, I use as a secondary flavor and lemon lime, I leave here for my kids and my kids and my wife. Uh, Liquid IV believes that equitable access to clean and abundant water is the foundation of a healthier world. They also partner with leading organizations to fund and foster innovative solutions that help communities protect both their water and their futures. To date, Liquid IV has donated over 39 million servings in 50 plus countries around the world. You can get 20% off when you grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free or any other variant at liquidiv.com. 
and use code TrueCrimeXS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code TrueCrimeXS at liquidiv.com. And the last sponsor I want to tell you about is Zencaster. We are part of Zencaster's creative network. We've been using Zencaster since about midway into our first season. Uh, Meg and I experimented with a lot of different ways to put the podcast together. And the truth is Zencaster was an, an integral ingredient to us being able to bring you this show. It's so easy. It's now super easy. You can record a podcast with Zencaster. You can log in using your browser and you start recording a high quality podcast right away. You can record studio quality sound and up to 4K video with your guests. You get to feel a sense of Zen knowing that Zencaster's multi-layered backups ensure you will always have your recordings in the highest quality, even if the connection is unstable. You sound your best. I mean, if you've ever worried about what you sound like, Zencaster's post-production process makes you sound buttery smooth. It automatically removes those ums and ahs in your recordings. It removes those awkward pauses and conversation too. You can set the right podcast loudness and levels while reducing background noise with a click of a button. That's how you don't hear my dogs every uh, second of every episode. Zencaster is all in one. If you've thought about podcasting before and realized that you need a lot of different tools and services, those days are now over. With Zencaster's all-in-one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place, and you can distribute to Spotify, Apple, and other ma major destinations. Just go to Zencaster.com pricing and use my code TrueCrimeXS, and you're going to get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. You can also check out the other plans they have available. I want you to have the same easy experiences that I do for all my podcasting and content needs. So Zencaster.com slash pricing. The offer code is TrueCrimeXS, and it's time for you to share your story today. Uh, we are also adding New Era as a uh, sponsor for the show. New Era Cap is a headwear and apparel brand founded in 1920 in Buffalo, New York. Now, uh, I actually have some experience with New Era Caps. My dad and I have been through multiple iterations of baseball caps through the years. We collect different styles, different eras, and now my teenager has started his own cap collection and has several New Eras as the centerpieces. Our favorite teams may not be the same, but our outfits are all topped with the same new era ball caps. Uh, we love the quality and the ability to wear what the players are wearing. Not to mention new era is the leading headwear manufacturer with quality licensed products. You can support your favorite college or pro team in style from the official headwear provider for the MLB, NFL, and NBA. You can get a stylish accessory for your everyday ensemble and support True Crime Excess. Just shop the official headwear and get 15% off when you go to neweracap.com. That's N-E-W-E-R-A-C-A-P.com slash TrueCrimeXS. You can also use the code TrueCrimeXS at checkout. That's it. That's all you have to do. And that's 15% off your order using the promo code TrueCrimeXS.